Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. I'm going to be speaking from Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, verses 25 through 32, uh, I want to talk about a brother's ungrace. This is the second half, really, of a story we're very familiar with called the parable of the prodigal son. Um, You're familiar with the story. Uh, It's where we get the phrase, I once was lost, but now I'm found. And it's a very familiar story. It may surprise you to know that most of the uh, dialogue in the story and attention seems to be drawn to the second Son, not the prodigal son, but the one who was supposedly the good son who remained behind. And so we want to focus in on that today. I do speak a separate message about the prodigal son, but I thought today we would focus on the second son, the good son, so to speak. But let me tell you a a story first. Carrie Stainer, a couple decades ago, was arrested for the murder of four women in Yosemite National Park, California. They were brutally murdered. The police had a theory that the reason he murdered them was out of jealousy toward his younger brother named Stephen. You see, Stephen was abducted at the age of seven by a pedophile and kept for seven years. And after seven years, his brother Stephen escaped And when he escaped, he brought with him another boy who had also been held captive. And so he was declared a hero by the news media, given interviews. People were sending cards and letters and gifts. And Carrie, his older brother, became jealous. He said Stephen began to get a big head and now he had to share his room with him. And he said anybody would have done the same thing in his position, helped that other boy escape. And he says what he did wasn't so great. Anybody would have done it. And he admits that he became jealous of him because he was getting all the attention. And he said, what did I get? He said, absolutely nothing. And so here's Brother Carey. Instead of rejoicing in a brother who was lost and is found, who is restored to the family, is angry and jealous and takes it out evidently on theory of by murdering people. He didn't understand the grace of restoration, the grace of uh, reconciliation with the family. He didn't understand the family's attitude of joy towards his brother Stephen. We could say that he was a brother of ungrace, which is what we're going to see today. I don't know if you ever become envy of another person's blessings or grace, um, but that might expose an attitude of ungrace if we were. When we see someone get a promotion that we think we deserved, or we see somebody 
suddenly get a financial boost, maybe an inheritance or something that, oh, you know, why did God pass me by? Or my brother, you know, or sister prospers and I, and I don't. When somebody seems to arbitrarily prosper or for whatever reason, what is our attitude towards them? Do we genuine, genuinely rejoice that they're experiencing God's grace in some form, whether it be financial, relations, job success, or career, um, education, whatever? Or do we become angry? And where does such an attitude come from anyway, this attitude of ungrace? Should we view the sinning brother who repents um, in uh, a jealous way? Can we have a father's heart and welcome him back or her back as a loving father would? Well, the context for this story in Luke chapter 15 is that the scribes and the Pharisees who represented the Jewish nation were criticizing Jesus because he ate with sinners. He associated with sinners. And so Jesus told three parables about the joy that the Father has when sinners come back to him. Now, Jesus could have been directing this to the scribes and Pharisees or to the nation of Israel. In all likelihood, it, it fit them. But remember that Luke was writing to a Gentile audience in all probability, and so it also fit the Gentiles. The truth is, is that the overarching truth is that anybody who comes back into a relationship with the, their father or their heavenly father is a cause for rejoicing with God and with the angels and should be a cause of rejoicing for us. So the woman uh, the, who loses the coin and finds it, the, the man, the shepherd who loses a sheep and finds it, and then there's the father who loses a son, but he returns and is found. That's the context of the story. Within that context, we see the reaction of this older brother and how he handles it. Handles it. Now, you remember from the story that um, it starts with uh, the father, the son, the prodigal son going to the father and asking for his part of the inheritance. And it was kind of a crude thing to do because his father was not yet dead and he would get the inheritance after his father died. But that was not the case. So he went and asked while he was still alive. And then he took it and he went to a far country, it says, and he spent it on profligate living, uh, excessive living. We don't know exactly what he did, but he ended up totally broke so that he was hired to feed the pigs and live with the pigs in the pig pen. And it, it was there that he had a change of mind, it says in the scriptures. He came to himself, a change of mind. He repented of his attitude and direction. And then he got up out of the mud and he said, well, I'll go back to my father because at least my ser his servants have something to eat. And I can at least be one of, like one of his servants and have something to eat. So he went back to his father. And his father saw him a long ways off and came running towards him and embraced him and welcomed him. And he told his servants, he said, go kill the fatted calf and we're going to have a great feast. That's where that story goes, okay? The son is restored to his father and there's great joy. Now we pick the story up in verse 25. And I'm going to read. Now his older brother was still in the field. And he came and drew near to the house. 
and he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, the servant said to his brother, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. Now, just a note here about something. When the son returns, where's the older brother? Well, he's in the field. He's working. He's a dutiful son. He was the firstborn son. Firstborns tend to be pretty dutiful, obedient, compliant, and pleasing their parents. That's what psychology says. I've seen that in experience as well. The firstborn son was being a dutiful son, doing what he was supposed to do. He was being responsible, doing what he was expected to do. He was working. He wasn't looking for his brother to return. He was in the field. He wasn't in the house with the other servants who were rejoicing and celebrating. Just the fact that he was in the field, I think, is maybe a little clue that he wasn't exactly of the same heartbeat and in fellowship with the rest of the household, the servants and the family that was rejoicing. He was separate from them in his attitude and in his outlook. So the brother, the older brother, was dutiful and he was responsible. And what is his response when they tell him that the fatted calf has been killed for his younger brother? Well, verse 28 says, but he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. Well, let's see what he's saying here. What in the world's going on? First of all, it says that he was angry. That's kind of an unexpected response. Oh, my brother's back? That's great. No, he was angry that his brother was back and that they were celebrating that fact. Where did that anger come from? You know, I read a quote just last night that somebody posted, a friend of mine posted, and it was from C.S. Lewis, and I can't quote it because I didn't write it down, but basically he said that we We get angry and we keep going back to anger because that's the place where we always feel righteous. When we're angry, we feel like we're right. And so this brother is angry because he thought he was right. He was doing the right thing. He was working for his father. And it made him feel good to be angry. Now, some things I want to note here. First of all, he thinks that he's been perfectly obedient. He says, uh, all these years I've been serving you. All these years. As if he had been perfectly obedient. Now, of course, we assume that he has not been perfectly obedient. Very unlikely. But he has been with his father all these years, he says. He was a very dutiful son and more responsible than his younger brother. But the emphasis here is on what he has been doing for his father, not on his relationship with his father. In fact, the word he uses when he says, I have been serving you, is that we get the word 
doulos, we get the word slave from that, servant, slave from that. It, he, he could, it's almost as if he's saying, I've been slaving for you all these years. With the implication that my brother's running off and having fun. But it seems to me that this older brother really didn't comprehend what sonship was all about. Sonship is not doing, it's being, it's relating. It's not just doing the right things, it's loving the right person, your father, your mother. That's what sonship is. It's not just working hard and slaving, as important as that might be in the family economy, but it's maintaining that close relationship with your parent, parents. We never sacrifice relationship for the sake of success. We never work hard. We never become industrious and leave the relationships behind. But that's what, where he seemed to be coming from. He didn't understand the idea and the importance of what it meant to be a son to his father. He was relating to his father on the basis of performance. The father wasn't. But, you know, sometimes we as fathers tend to do that too. We relate to our children on the basis of performance of whether they're doing good in school whether they're cleaning, keeping their room clean, obeying uh, our commands to keep the door closed, the noise down, now you're good children. You know, if we knew the older brother, we would probably make him a deacon in the church or maybe an elder. He's responsible, he's dutiful, he's uh, mature. He's, he's a model church member. He's there all the time. He's respectable. He gets things done. He just can't relate. He thinks he's been obedient, but that may not be the case. He also thinks that he has been cheated. Because, you see, they're, they're sacrificing the calf for his younger brother, and that's a pretty luxurious feast. But he says, you don't even give me a goat. Goat's much less than a calf, you take it, you understand. You don't even give me a goat that I can go and, and, and have a party with my friends. You see his thinking here? First of all, you cheated me. You don't even give me a goat. Secondly, if I had a goat, I'd go party with my friends, not with you. There's big problems there. Not just in the fact he felt he was cheated, but in the fact that he felt he had a better fellowship or relationship to his partying friends than he did to his good father. He feels like he lost something. Like he was not appreciated. But really, the prodigal son is the one who lost much. He lost his part of the inheritance. There's no indication in the story that he got it back. In fact, the older brother deserved, as the firstborn, deserved a double portion of inheritance. So he still hadn't lost that. So for a moment, he didn't get the fatted calf, but he still has double inheritance and his brother has nothing. How short-sighted he was. Something else. 
The way he looks at the situation tells us that he thinks others are more sinful than he is. I, I like what he says here. I don't like what he says here, whatever. But he says uh, uh, to his father, but as in verse 30, but as soon as this son of yours came, not my brother, this son of yours, as if to disown him and dissociate himself from his brother, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots. Well, how does he know with harlots? It's not in the story. Is he casting aspersions? Did he hear rumors from his friends? Uh, or is he just charging him falsely? Whatever he's doing, he's mentioning specific sins as a lever, to use that leverage against his brother with his father. And you killed the fatted calf for him. The attitude of the older brother seems to be an attitude of unforgiveness, judgmental, critical, maybe even with false accusations, callous, disowning his brother, this son of yours. In his thinking, sin had to be punished. Favor had to be deserved. Forgiveness had to be earned. Repentance had to be proven. Kindness was something you worked for. And so what you're beginning to see here is we have two brothers. Neither of them understands God's grace. One we call the prodigal son. The other we could call the prodigal brother. Because the son thought that if he didn't do bad and went home to his father, he could again earn his father's good grace. But the good son felt that since he's already been good, he deserved his father's grace. They were both coming at grace in the, in the wrong way. Both of them had the attitude that if I serve my father... He'll treat me good because I've served my father. He should treat me good. But you see, grace is an undeserved, unconditional gift of God that we cannot earn by anything that we do. And there's nothing that we can, no bad thing we can do to prevent God's grace. There's no amount of good things we can do to deserve God's grace. It, we are all on the same playing field. We are all undeserving sinners. And God, by His grace, has chosen to bless us unconditionally. Some, when we're at age four, come to know that grace and are saved. Some at the age of 14 come to know that grace and are saved. Some at the age of 24. Some at the age of 19. That's me. Some at the age of 74 come to know that grace. But it's all the same. And then we see the father's rebuke in verse 31 and 32. I like the fact that the father doesn't back down at all. He stands his ground in this situation for what he knows is right. And he reminds his older brother of what he has, the older brother has. Verse 31, he said to him, the older brother's son, notice he calls him son, you were always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. 
He had an unbroken relationship with his father. He might have taken that for granted, but he has always had that relationship with his father. It was always there. It was always a possibility. It was always the, a potential whether he, he took advantage of it or not. The older son, his father reminds him, you've always been with me. Isn't that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? And all that I have is yours. You've got the double portion of my inheritance now. In fact, you've got it all because your brother exploited his, wasted his. He had access or ownership of his father's possessions as the firstborn who would receive that double portion. What a privilege it would be to have access to all of his father's wealth. But then... He has a brother who was lost, but is now found, but he doesn't rejoice. And notice what the father says. He says, um, your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and was found. That statement, by the way, was, a, was dead and alive, lost and found, as repeated earlier in the same parable. So there's, that's the emphasis of the parable, that we should rejoice of what... what on, about something that was dead and is now alive and something that was lost and is now found. And he says, your brother was that way. A few, a few seconds ago, the older brother said, your son. And the father reminds him, your brother. He's your brother. And so in a, in a way, it's a rebuke to him. And it was right that we should make merry. That's the right thing to do. It was, in fact, necessary, is I think the implication here. It was necessary that we do that. Joy was called for. What a celebration we should have. The dead comes to life. The lost is found. A boy taken by a pedophile at age seven is, manages to make his way back home at the age of 14. And instead of rejoicing at a life that is saved and restored and taken out of such a terrible nightmare situation, the older brother is jealous and angry. That's a brother of ungrace. Well, what are some lessons we can find in this example of a brother's ungrace? First of all, it's easy to think that we are more righteous than we are. I've never killed anybody. I've never murdered anybody. I've never kidnapped anybody. I've never fill in the blank. So I'm not a bad person. In fact, I'm a pretty good person because we evaluate our goodness on what we've done and not done. On performance. Instead of our heart relationship. Many people look good on the inside, but their hearts are like whitewashed tomb, Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees who did everything right on the outside, but they were full of dead men's bones. It's easy to get into that trap when we're doing the right things to think uh, that, that we're, we're really, really good people. We're really righteous, but the fact is that we do them to please others because that's what others expect of us. But you and I know that in our heart, it's a different story. You and I know that in our heart, 
there's all kinds of evil intentions and motives. And if they, people weren't watching us, if they weren't monitoring our performance, we'd be doing something quite different. It's easy to think that we're more righteous than we are. It's also easy to think that we're being cheated for being good. I deserve better than this, you might think. Why does my friend prosper? Why does my brother or sister prosper? And I'm struggling. I've been cheated. And God has cheated me. How come I didn't come to know Christ until I was uh, 30, 40 years old? But my friend, he knew Christ when he was four years old. And he was able to enjoy church fellowship and church friendship and ministry and teaching and potluck dinners all of his life. And I saw the darker side of life until I came to know Christ. People can think like that. They can think that they've been cheated. But you know what? Think about this. The prodigal son wasted his life. He wasted his years, and he'll never get those years back. He wasted his inheritance, and there's no indication that he'll get that back. The older son at least has what he has built over the years. He didn't waste it, and he still has his inheritance. When we stray from God, we can always come back, but that doesn't mean that we'll regain what we have lost. Jesus said, lay up treasures in heaven. Well, when we depart from him and do our own thing, we're not laying up treasures in heaven. When we're faithful to him, we're laying up treasures in heaven. And so why should we think that we're being cheated if someone who departs from Christ loses treasures in heaven and then comes back, he's going to have less than he could have? I found it, read an interesting statistic, and I didn't do the math, but... It sounds about right. Take two twins, 22 years old. Two twins, 20 years old. One of them invests $2,000 for six years, each year $2,000, and then he stops after six years, $12,000. The other twin in the seventh year begins to invest $2,000 a year. Let's check on them 37 years later when they're 65 years old. They each have about $1.2 million. Because one didn't waste those first six years of his time. Financially, that's good advice, by the way. Start saving now, <laughs> right? Start saving now. That's what I tell my children. It'll pay off later. But what an example it is spiritually, too, that serve God when you're younger and lay those treasures up in heaven. There's compound interest in heaven, evidently. And the riches increase. But we lose that if we squander our later years. Well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll do what I want to now, and I'll, uh, I'll turn back to God on my deathbed. Or when I'm old and I can't have any fun anymore. What kind of attitude is that? To give up all the riches and treasures of heaven that you could have had? that you could have enjoyed for eternity, for one moment's pleasure in this life? That's stinking thinking, my friends. 
It's easy to think that we've been cheated. It's easy to be ungracious towards sinners when they come to know the Lord. Maybe the best example of that is from the Old Testament when Jonah was sent to the Ninevites, the dreaded enemies, the cruel enemies of Israel. And God told Jonah to go and preach to them a message of forgiveness and withholding judgment. And Jonah didn't want to go. You don't know those people. They're cruel. They're nasty. They're ugly. They eat different food. Their breath smells. I don't want to go to those people. Whatever. But God loved them too, he reminded them. In fact, at the end of the book, it's so interesting. God even knows about the cattle and so forth. God knows everything about them. He created them. He cares for them. And he wants them to be brought into a relationship with him. We've through the years heard about many people who've done horrendous crimes and then they go to prison and they're on death row and we hear about their conversion to Christianity. Many people are skeptical and probably should be some of the time because there's a lot of death row conversions. One of the ones that stands out in my mind is a woman named Carla Faye Tucker. who She was an axe murderer in, I think, East Texas. And she was eventually executed, but there were, she became a Christian and led Bible studies in her prison. And many Christians were advocating for her. And I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong. I don't want to get into that discussion. I'm just saying that can we not rejoice that this woman who murdered in cold blood became a Christian and was restored and, and brought into a relationship with God as her heavenly father? Someone who had been so lost to do such a terrible thing was now found. Someone who was so dead and separated from God is now found and in the family of God. Isn't that a cause for rejoicing? Shouldn't we be patient with sinners as much as we are with our own children when we're teaching them to ride a bicycle or drive a car? Yeah, they're going to make mistakes. They're going to fall down, but we don't leave them in the dirt and the mud. We pick them up and we tell them to try it again. Until they get it right. Yes, Jesus ate with sinners. And he knew sinners were going to sin. But he was patient. And he was loving. And he was always ready to rejoice when they came to know him. Well, some of the things I think that you and I can take home from this story today. First of all, we should rejoice in God's grace toward others. Not be angry, not be jealous. You got a new car, wonderful. You got a promotion, the one that I should have got, wonderful. Mom and dad did what for you? Great. Can't we rejoice in the grace that other people find? God's not stingy in his grace. If you were to count your, your, your blessings, you'd find that you just got it in different ways than others, perhaps. Grace shouldn't compare blessings one to another. God blesses us in different ways. Remember that we're all debtors to him. None of us deserve anything. So anything that we get is by his grace. 
Another thing we should take away is if we love God, we must love others. This is the word that is committed to us according to 1 John 4, verse 21. If, though, if you love God, he who loves God must love his brother, it says. He who loves God must love his brother. It's not really an option. If we love God with all our hearts, we will love our brothers as ourselves. Because love always does what the object of our love desires. God, as the object of our love, desires us to love our brothers and sisters. If we love God, we must love our brother. And then we too can wander from God. We can wander from God in slow, undetected ways sometimes, like perhaps this older brother of ungrace, who thought he was doing the right thing on the outside, but on the inside seemed to be so far away from his father, much farther now than the younger prodigal son who had returned. We have to check our attitudes. The book of Hebrews, we could go into that, but boy, it talks about this root of bitterness coming in there and being, be careful about that but we won't get into Hebrews right now. The point is you can be doing everything right and you can be going to church and you can be paying your, your, your tithes or giving and, um, and volunteering for church service and yet your heart is growing colder or bitter because you're fooling yourself that your outside performance is really what God wants from you because that's what other people want from you. And in the meantime, neglecting the important things of time with God, of time in his word, of just responding and communicating to him, receiving his love, returning his love. Be careful about your heart growing cold, even though your outward performance looks like you're doing fine. And if we're willing, willing to rejoice at transforming grace in somebody else and what God can do with somebody else, we should be willing to take that grace, that message of grace, and share it with other people. And that's something that we can all do. We've all experienced God's grace. If you don't feel it, stop and count your blessings and ask God to remind you of the grace that you have. I hope that when you woke up this morning, you're just, thank you, God, that I woke up on the right side of the sod. I woke up above the grass and not below. I mean, that's something to be thankful for, right? Take the grace and the everyday blessings of life and then the super blessings of life and, and use that as a reason to share God's grace with other people who so desperately need it because the truth is there's a lot of people in this world who do not comprehend God's grace that's in the gospel. They're like the prodigal son who thinks that they have to, to earn it and do, come back and do the right things. And, and maybe God will, if they promise to serve God, he'll give them the grace of salvation, eternal life. Or they're like the older brother and they said, well, I've lived a good life, so I've, I deserve it. Most of the world thinks that way. They have a misunderstanding of grace that it has to be earned or deserved, whether up front or in the back, the back end. 
They think that they can earn it or they deserve it. That's what most of the world thinks. But our message to them is that we do not deserve it. We are all sinners before God. We've all fallen short of his glory. And his grace abounds towards all. His grace is not fair. It will save some when they are young. It will save some like my father on their deathbed. But it's all grace. A free gift from God. Bought and purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross who paid the price for our sins and declared that it was finished or paid for and then rose from the dead to demonstrate that God had accepted that gift and then promised eternal life to anyone who believed in him for eternal life. And that's not fair that the unjust, the just would suffer for the unjust or that the righteous would suffer for the unrighteous. But God laid on him the iniquity of us all and his righteousness upon us. I had a friend some time ago in my church and uh, he was, father had cancer and was dying, and he shared the gospel with his father on his deathbed and told him that he could believe and have eternal life. And his father said, oh, that wouldn't, David, that wouldn't be fair. I've lived my whole life ignoring God and doing what I want to. It wouldn't be fair for me to turn to him at the end of my life. And David said, what do I say to him? I said, well, you tell your father that grace is never fair. Grace is never fair. I imagine there were some who stood under those three crosses where Jesus was in the middle and they saw the one thief curse, told the other thief to curse God and die. But that third thief on the cross believed in Jesus there. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. A man who was not even able to be baptized, was not able to do one good thing, go to one worship service or sing one worship song. And yet he gets into heaven just as much as you and I. Grace is not fair. We're all sinners. None of us deserve it. Do you understand that kind of grace today? That God wants you in his family because of what Jesus has done, not because of what you've done. He doesn't care how bad or good you've been. He's not going to give you his grace on that basis. It's only because of what Jesus Christ has done. You receive that gift today as a, as a free gift of eternal life, and you are saved forever. Stop trying to earn it. And deserve it. You never will. Jesus earned it and deserved it and paid the price for our sins so that you can experience the absolutely free gift of eternal life. Let me pray with you. Our Father, we are so grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And we pray that we would take what we see and learn here today, that we might develop a true relationship with you as a loving Father. Not one based on our performance and how good we're doing or the bad things that we've done, but just purely on the love and the unconditional grace of God. And if there's anyone, Lord, who is uncertain about their eternity, may this be the moment of their salvation. May this be the moment that they say, I'm trusting in Jesus Christ and him and his righteousness for my salvation, not in my own good works. And may they rejoice as one who is dead and now alive, as one who is lost and now found. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. 
For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.